0: One of my jobs when I was in the Oklahoma Army National Guard was that of a reconnaissance scout. And as a recon scout, my main job was to go forward to the friendly lines to find out all we could about the enemy. We were to find and then observe and report. We found where the enemy was. We observed what kind of weapons they had. We observed um, what kind of positions they were in, what kind of vehicles they had. Uh, we observed basically everything we could about them, and then we reported it back to the, the bigwigs at headquarters. They would then take the intel that we had provided, and they would formulate a plan on how to attack the enemy. And the more information we could give them, the better the plan of attack would be. Because what they wanted is, they did not want the line troops when they attacked to be surprised by what kind of weapons they found, and, and what kind of soldiers They were up against the more we could give them the less friendly casualties there would likely be the intel that we gathered was crucial to keeping the ground troop from being blindsided by the strength and the capabilities of the bad guys. And one of the. One of the ways that a Christian life is described in Scripture is that of a soldier and when Scripture describes the Christian life as that of a soldier, it's not. The picture of a peacetime soldier, but that of a wartime soldier. The life of following Jesus and engaging a spiritually darkened culture with the light of Christ is not the life of shiny brass buttons, spit shine shoes and marching in parades. Instead, it is a life of knowing that there is a very real enemy that will do what he can to destroy me and dissuade me from following Jesus and engaging the spiritually darkened culture with the light. Christ. And what I want to do today and the message we're going to look at is act as a recon scout for you. Giving you intel on the enemy, the way he'll attack things that will come up, what we can expect and to kind of give us a way that we can overcome it so that we will not be blindsided by the spiritual warfare we face as we seek to engage our culture with the light of Christ. So that we'll know what we can expect and we'll know how to fight against it when it comes. So open your Bible to Acts chapter 18. It's page 847 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand to on the reading of God's word. I'm actually going to read the first six verses today. And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come to Italy, come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. They opposed him and blasphemed. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own head. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. The title of the message this morning is Into the Darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you, God, for your grace and your mercy. Father, we are amazed at the good things you've given us. We are amazed at all the blessings you've poured out upon us in our life. We are amazed most of all at Jesus Christ and the just the victory that he had won for us on Calvary. Father, we want to take the message of Jesus to those They're trapped in darkness around us, but we need your help. We need your strength and we need your power and we need to be prepared for the battles that we'll face. So use this time today to strengthen us. Use this time today to encourage us. Use this time today to prepare us. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways and not be a hindrance to what you want done. Be glorified. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Acts 18, the first 18 verses are an overview of Paul's ministry in Corinth. Corinth was a very wicked city. Paul went there with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he made a huge difference in this. And if you were here last week, you remember that the main idea for this whole chapter here is that spiritual darkness is no match for the light of Christ. The depth of depravity in Corinth did not deter the gospel from going and changing lives and keeping Paul from making disciples of all nations. The gospel is greater than the oppression of spiritual darkness. The gospel can do what nothing else can. Now, there are seven principles that I mentioned that we're going to look at. And today I had intended on looking at the final four, Um, but the more I studied on the first point, the first principle that we were going to look at today, the more information kind of flowed into my notes. And so this is really all we're going to look at today. Right? Because if we are going to, to engage a spiritually darkened culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one thing we're going to have to do is expect opposition. We're going to have to expect there will be opposition to our faith, to our service, to our desire to help bring people out of darkness and into to line. This is what Paul experienced. Right? In verse 6 it talks about that they, they opposed him and they blasphemed. They opposed him. Right? In other words, really they tried to stop him from preaching the gospel. They tried to stop him from engaging that darkened culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they blasphemed. And the idea that they blasphemed, there isn't so much that they blasphemed God. Instead it's that they reviled Paul. They insulted Paul. Right and, and I think probably from what I've gathered there are a lot of ways that they did this. Right? It is likely that there were some who sat in the crowds as he taught and hurled insults at him. They interrupted him and tried to, to make him look stupid, which was hard to do with Paul because he was smarter than they all were. I think also it's likely that they, they went around behind his back and began to tell other people, you can't trust Paul and, and all of these bad things about Paul, right? They, they just did what they could to undermine his character and to undermine his witness so the people wouldn't listen. Well, that didn't work. And so we're not going to look at it, but if you were to look at chapter or verse 12 through verse 17, you're going to find that at some point it gets that if they decide to do is they take Paul to court. Right? They, they take him before a Roman governor and the goal is to have him say, Paul cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in Corinth anymore. They are doing all that they can to oppose the message. They're doing all that they can to stop Paul from preaching about Jesus and freeing people from the bondage of spiritual darkness. You and I, if we decide we are going to set out and we are going to engage a spiritually darkened culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'd better expect opposition. Because if we set out to do it, we will find what Paul found. And that is, Satan does not give up ground without a fight. He is not just going to set idly by and let us upset what he wants to do. Right? And as we think about the opposition and the stuff that we face, it's important that we understand. Satan is not fighting for control of our culture. Satan is not fighting for control of those who are in spiritual darkness. Scripture teaches Satan already has control of them. But if our gospel is veiled, right? And the idea is if someone does not see the necessity of the gospel for their lives, right, if they do not understand that the gospel is for them and that Jesus is for them and that they need Jesus, it is veiled to those who are perishing. They are perishing. Every single person you know who does not accept that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and their personal Savior is spiritually, eternally perishing. It doesn't mean they're going to physically die. It means they will, without fail, go to hell. But notice what it goes on to say. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. Why is their mind veiled to the gospel? Because Satan is working to keep them blinded. He already is influencing them. He already has given them lies to believe rather than the truth. Reasons why they don't see their need for Jesus. I mean, they will give you an answer. They can tell you why they're good without God. They can tell you why it's okay for you and they're glad that makes you happy, but why they don't need it. And all of that is a satanic lie. Something he is using to blind them to their need for Jesus. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through about 5 tells us the same sort of thing. Satan is... Satan is not vying for control of our culture. He already has control of our culture. Satan is not vying for control of the hearts and the minds of those who are separated from Jesus Christ. He already has control of them. And he does not want to lose that control. He likes that control. He wants to keep that control. And he will do anything and everything he can to keep it. Because Satan knows that in the end, he loses. He knows that in Revelation, it proclaims that he will be tossed in the lake of fire where he will be tormented throughout eternity forever and ever without end. And he wants to take as many people with him as he possibly can. And when you and I begin to upset that apple cart, that plan, that mission, he will get involved. And the only time, the only time we upset Satan's plan, the only time we threaten his control, is when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul went on to say. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commands the light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown the hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we... Engage those that are bound in spiritual darkness to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God works through that to save those people, to free them from bondage of spiritual darkness, bring them from darkness into light. And it is only the gospel that has this power. Our morals do not have the power to bring people from darkness to light. Our political opinions do not have the power to bring people from darkness to light. Religious activities have no power to bring people from darkness to light. The only, the only thing has the power to bring people from darkness to light. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we engage a spiritually darkened culture with the light of Christ, we threaten Satan's control on that person's life. We threaten Satan's control on that culture. And as we do, there will be opposition. And as I was thinking about the kind of opposition we face... I thought about it in in two ways. Now, if you were here at the beginning of service, I read where Paul said that outside were conflicts and inside was fear. And that was what Paul faced in all kinds of places. There was external and internal opposition. So I want to talk about the external and internal kinds of opposition that we'll face. I want to start with, with internal. Now, when we think of internal opposition, that sounds odd because internal is where? It's in me. And yet we're familiar with the idea that the flesh and the spirit are working against one another. Walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These two are contrary to one another so that you cannot do do the things that you wish. Inside each and every believer in Jesus Christ, our sinful nature still resides. And our sinful nature does not want us to do the things that Jesus wants us to do. And inside every believer of Jesus Christ, there is the Holy Spirit of God that wants us to do the things that Jesus would have us to do. And all the time in our lives, both of these two are fighting. They are fighting with us for control of our lives. And they are fighting with each other. As the flesh tempts us to sin, the Holy Spirit says, don't do that. You know better, don't do that. And as the Holy Spirit tries to lead us to follow Jesus, the sinful nature says, don't do that. It won't work. It's going to be uncomfortable. Why should you have to do it? Leave it for somebody else. That's not your job. It does whatever it can to keep us from doing the will of God. Engaging those in spiritual darkness. The the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is absolutely something Jesus wants each and every one of us to do. We are all meant to be witnesses. We are all meant to be lights. We are all meant to go and make disciples of all nations. And Holy Spirit places that desire within us. And as we begin to think on it, decide we're going to do it, our sinful nature fights against that desire. He begins to push back and pull back and pull away, doing all that he can. And I was just thinking, how does our sinful nature internally oppose us to keep us from engaging the culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Fear, I think, is a big one. Anytime I talk to someone or I talk to people and I say, why, what is the number one thing that keeps you from sharing the gospel, which sharing the gospel is the essence of engaging the culture with the light of Christ? What is the number one thing that keeps you from sharing the gospel? The number one thing that most people give is fear. I'm afraid to. The the things we're afraid of are, are vast and numerous, but it's fear at the end. You know, fear is powerful, isn't it? Fear is a powerful motivator or demotivator for our lives. Through fear, we will do things we would not normally do. Through fear, we will probably even do things we know we shouldn't do. At The same time. Fear is a powerful demotivator. Because of fear, we will not do things that we would normally do. Because of fear, we will not do things we know we should do. That's why peer pressure is such a huge thing. Now, none of us want to say that we're kept from doing something because of fear, right? I mean, that's that's an awful thing to, to admit. But if we were to all be honest... I think most of us, if not all of us, would say. One of the part of what keeps me from engaging the culture, engaging my friends that are trapped in spiritual darkness with light, is I'm afraid, I'm afraid of what they'll say. I'm afraid of how they'll respond. I'm afraid of losing the friendship. I'm, I'm afraid right? because our sinful nature can give us all of these scenarios and all of these ideas about what will happen. I mean, just today, as you go home, before you go to bed tonight, determine tomorrow you're going to talk to one person and be specific, not just one person. But you pick someone and you determine you're going to talk to them tomorrow, come hell or high water, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you lay there in the darkness, just think about all the things that are going to go on in your mind. Tomorrow's not a good day. Now, maybe Tuesday would be a better day. Monday's never good for anybody, right? Nobody's in a good mood on Monday. Well, when I see them, it's before they've had their coffee, and that's not a good thing. Then when I see them at lunch, time's too short. Instantly, we start coming up with ideas. Instantly, we start coming up with reasons. Fears, that's why we can't do it. Fear's a demotivator. Keeps us from doing the will of God. It keeps us from engaging our culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we overcome that fear? That's a question, right? How do we overcome that fear? We remember that that sort of fear is never from God. Look at what Paul said. God has not given us a spirit of fear. And this is tough here. The word that's used as fear there could also be translated as, as cowardice. So this isn't like I'm afraid, but I do it anyway. This is God has given us not given us a spirit of cowardice that keeps us from doing what God wants us to do any time there is a fear in me of doing what god wants me to do i can be absolutely certain that is not and never will be from god God never gives me a spirit of fear that makes me afraid to do His will. God never gives me a spirit of fear that makes me afraid to engage a spiritually darkened culture with the light of Christ. He will never give me a spirit of fear that keeps me from doing the things He wants me to do. But He has given us something to overcome it. But instead, He has given us a a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. The idea of power is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what needs to be done. Acts eight says that the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, uh, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit empowers us to faithfully, fruitfully share the gospel. To engage the culture with the line of Christ. Now, one thing about Acts eight and other passages that deal with that that I want to point out is. The Holy Spirit never enables us to sit. We don't need the Holy Spirit's empowering to sit and not serve. We don't need the Holy Spirit to enable us not to share the gospel. So if we're not going to share the gospel, the Holy Spirit will not anoint us and empower us to do that. The Holy Spirit empowers us to serve. He empowers us to do. He gives us the power necessary to do what needs to be done in this case. To engage a spiritually darkened culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God also gives us love. Great commandment and the one just like it. Love the Lord your God. Love your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbors. you love yourself. Those are motivating factors. Should be motivating factors for everything we do. Really in life. But especially for Jesus. I should love Jesus so much that I want to tell people about him. I should love Jesus so much that I'm willing to do what he wants me to do and tell others about him. But I should also do it because I love them. And we'll talk about this in a minute. But the greatest good we can do for someone is help them come to know Jesus Christ. And you know the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Aren't you glad somebody told you about Jesus? Aren't you glad somebody gave you opportunity after opportunity to hear the message, believe the message, call on Jesus and be saved go and do to others, love them enough to do for them what somebody else did for you? And of a sound mind, sound mind could probably be better translated as self-discipline. Self-discipline is simply doing what you know you ought to do, but self-discipline is doing what you know you ought to do, even when you want to do something else. But when I'm tempted to do wrong, self-discipline says no. When I don't want to do right, self-discipline says yes. When I'm afraid to share the gospel. God has given me the self-discipline necessary to overcome that fear and share it anyway. God has given us everything we need to overcome the internal obstacle of fear. Another internal obstacle is discouragement. I think discouragement also ranks pretty high on why we don't share the gospel, why we don't engage our culture, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've ever read a book on evangelism, you know those books are filled with stories of leading people to Jesus. They are incredible stories. I've read I don't know how many books. And I mean, they just walk up to random people on the street. Or they have people walk up to them. Do you know Jesus? And they lay it out and these people get saved. And I'm not saying those stories aren't true, but I'm going to say those stories can't be the sum total of their experience, because a far more common experience for me in sharing the gospel. With somebody is this. I pray, and pray and pray and pray for God to save them, for God to work in their heart, for God to help me share the gospel. I study and I prepare and I think about the things I need to say and I go and I talk to them and I lay out my case for why they need Jesus and and I call on them to make a decision and they go, "Mm, thanks but no thanks. Wow, what a letdown. You've gone with expectation. You've gone with hope. They're not angry. They're not shoving you or slapping you. They're just like, "Uh, I'm glad that helps you. Thanks for telling me I don't need that. Oh. Man, just lay in bed and look at the ceiling and think, what is wrong with me? And our sinful nature will kick up on that. I've already tried it once and it didn't fail. It didn't work. It failed. You're a failure. You can't lead anybody to Jesus. Who do you think you are? Nobody's going to listen to you. Why should you even try? Give up. Quit. Lay down. Don't bother with it. You do better if you just keep your mouth shut and go on like that. And just will beat you down and discourage you from sharing the gospel, from trying to help. So how do we overcome discouragement? We remember that our job is not to save souls, but to plant seeds. Look look at what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, should sleep by night and rise up in the day. And the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after the full grain of the head. But when the crop ripens immediately, he puts forth the sickle, because the harvest has come. And then, Paul, we'll get to this in a few months, maybe. Um, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And I love both of these. And as as a pastor, these are verses I have to lean on heavily. I don't know if you've noticed or not. But I I preach often. And there's not always just a a flood of people at the altar repenting and believing on Jesus. Uh, There's just not a flood of people wanting to get dunked in the water every week. There's a lot of weeks where there's no visible response. There's no visible change. There's a lot of weeks where unbelievers come and shake my hand on the way out and tell me that was a great message and never come back. Discouragement. My sinful nature knows how to work that. These verses, though, remind me I do not know what God can do with what I've tried. I do not know what God will do through the efforts I've made. And in the end, my job isn't to save their souls. I plant. Hopefully, somebody else will water, but then God will give the increase. There's a story, and I'm sure I've told it before because it's my favorite story about this. There's a guy. And I don't know his name. He grew up in Scotland. And on his last Sunday in Scotland, before his family moved to America, he was seven years old. And the Scottish preacher preached the gospel in you know, that cool Scottish accent. And then the kid was never saved, didn't respond. They they left. They moved to America, became a farmer. Ninety years went by. He was ninety seven years old. He was. Out, kind of looking over the the farm and the stuff that was that he had built, and he thought back to that sermon he heard ninety years ago, and it clicked that he needed Jesus. He got saved. The old Scottish preacher that preached to him never saw it, never saw the visible results. Was likely dead before that ever happened. You and I, we cannot know what will happen, what God will do through our efforts. The gospel has power. On its own to work in the hearts, to germinate, to bring forth fruit. Our job is never, ever, ever to save a soul. Our job is to plant the seeds. That's all we can do. And once we faithfully planted the seed, what happens from that is up to that person and to the God of the gospel. And we should leave it in their hands. The reality is, if we try, we cannot fail. The only way we fail in engaging the culture with the life of the Christ is if we fail to try. It doesn't matter if we've stuttered and stumbled our way through it. God can use and God will use amazing things to do it. So we, we remember that discouragement, our job is not to save. Procrastination. Now, this is one that I think can be a big one, too. I'm going to talk to someone About Jesus. I'm going to go to them. And I'm going to share the gospel with them. And then I go to them. And I start coming up with reasons why this is not the right time. Oh, they're busy. They're busy and I don't want to stop them. Oh, they're at work and I'm at work. And so that wouldn't be good. You know, they're kind of in a mood today. And, well, you know, to be honest with you, I'm kind of in a mood too. So I'm not sure how it would go. And on and on and on our reasons go. And we, we just don't. We, we put it off. It's not that I'm not going to talk to them. It's just I'm not going to do it today. Maybe maybe tomorrow will be better. Maybe maybe I'll do it at Thanksgiving. Maybe Christmas. Maybe I'm just going to wait till the New Year. That will be a New Year's resolution to talk to them about Jesus. Well, it's a new year and I've got a lot of time, so I'm going to do it next month. On and on we go with making Excuses, giving reasons why not now. Our flesh doesn't care if we want to talk to them about Jesus. Our flesh doesn't care if we plan to talk to them about Jesus. The only thing our flesh cares about is that we actually talk to them about Jesus. Flesh will let you make plans, have ideas, work up an outline of what you're going to say. But it will do everything it can to keep you from actually putting that into practice procrastination is good because, I don't know about you, I, now I procrastinate, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. Anytime I, I do writing for Randall House or for college, I, I meet the deadline. And I'm not going to tell you how much I meet the deadline, by. just that I meet the deadline. And I always say, next time I'm not, but, but I don't always do that. And so, there I am at 11.59, hitting send, hope they get it before midnight. Procrastination is good because procrastination is not really quitting, is it? One of my classes, I had procrastinated and I'm kind of embarrassed to say three years. I don't know why they let me go that long, but they did let me go for three years. Finally, one of the guys, the professor emailed me and he said, why don't you just quit? Oh, no. Now, I'll procrastinate until Jesus comes back, but I'm not quitting, buddy. I'll do it now. Right. And that's what procrastination does in three years. Are you in college? I am. I'm taking a class on Old Testament survey. Are you doing anything on it? Haven't done anything on it in about a year and a half, but I'm still in class. Right? I'm not quitting. I'm not not trying. I'm just not doing anything. And that's what procrastination with sharing the gospel is. Oh, I'm going to. I've got somebody on my mind. I'm praying for them every day. Are you doing it? Oh, well, you know, at some point I'm going to get to that and work it out and, and do it. Procrastination is such a convenient and easy thing to do. Because I don't have to give up. I don't have to say that I've quit. I can just say, not yet. So how do we overcome our internal opposition to procrastination? We remember that life is uncertain. Life is short. And our job is to redeem the time. Paul said, live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Live wisely. Part of it is to live rightly. But a bigger part of what Paul meant there was to Be wise about when the opportunities arise to tell them about Jesus, to take advantage of those opportunities. And when those opportunities arise, take them. Be wise enough to see it. Be courageous enough to take it. The reality is we don't know that we'll have another opportunity. One of my cousins went to a church and he lives way out in the middle of nowhere. And went to church, and the pastor encouraged them to share the gospel with someone this week. So Rob left the church, and he got to thinking. He said, I don't even know if I know anybody. He kind of works on a farm and doesn't deal with a lot of people outside of his family and his church family. And he said, I don't even know if I know anybody that's not saved. And as he was driving home down this long and lonely dirt road, there was a guy walking the road. And he said, "I I bet old John, I don't remember what the guy's name was, I've never seen him in church. I've never known him to go. I bet I could talk to him. And he stopped and he was about to back up and go talk to the guy, and then he got to thinking, oh, that's kind of weird, right? Some dude stopping on the side of the road. I would like to talk to you about Jesus. And so he said, That won't feel right. I'll I'll go to his house. He's obviously going somewhere. He's got something to do. I'll catch him at home, but since I don't know where he's going and when he'll be home, I'll catch him tomorrow. Rob told me, he said, That guy died in his sleep that night. And he said, I've always wondered. What happened? Where did he go? Could I have made a difference in that? But I'll never know. And, and, and that's what happens when we procrastinate. There is no guarantee we're going to get another shot at it. The one shot we have, maybe the last shot we have. So we better take it. Walk wisely. Redeem the time. Don't procrastinate. Then there is external opposition. Now, the external opposition we face here in Texas County is likely different than the external uh, uh, opposition that Paul faced. I mean, there's not a lot of chance that we're going to get beaten with rods or arrested or thrown in jail. That happened to Paul pretty frequently for what he did. But even though we're not going to be hit or beat or thrown in jail, it doesn't mean there's not external opposition. And I think in our culture, there are two primary ways that we will face external opposition. And I think they're both cured with the same way. The first one is ridicule. People will make fun of you. They'll make light of what you're doing. They'll mock you and belittle you. Right? That's what they did with Paul. They, they opposed him and they blasphemed. Right? They, they made fun of him. That happened to him in multiple occasions. Better than average chance that if you start out to share the gospel, to engage the culture, the light of Christ, somebody's going to make fun of you, too. Now, how they make fun of you, how they ridicule you, it, it varies among people. Perhaps they know you really well and there's stuff in your past that that Jesus has changed about you and they'll bring that up. Oh, look at you. I remember when you were da-da-da-da-da. And now look at you. You're like, oh, Jesus like me. And that's hard to deal with. Perhaps they're just going to say, uh, oh, oh, look, what a you're so holy, you're so good. What a what a great Christian you are. Or, Or they're going to just find ways. To try to hurt your feelings. The thing is, ridicule is a powerful weapon of the enemy because nobody likes to be made fun of, do they? Nobody likes to be belittled like that. And really, I think in a lot of ways, ridicule tests. What's really important to us. Because if my treasure and my goal. And the thing that's most important is fitting in. And being liked. ridicule will shut me down from anything. That Jesus wants me to do if I'm ridiculed. Ridicule is like peer pressure. It will make me do things I shouldn't do. But if. Jesus is my treasure, and if hearing well done, now good and faithful servant is the greatest goal, then ridicule won't shut me down. Ridicule won't stop me. If My ultimate goal is just to fit in, to be one of the guys, one of the gals, just to to be liked, The fear of ridicule, the certainty of ridicule, will certainly keep me from engaging the culture of the light of Christ. The second one is shame. This one is growing. Years ago, I mean, shame wasn't something that really people did to keep you from sharing the gospel. But things have changed. In our culture today, people want us to believe that sharing the gospel is, is bad. One guy, an article I read, he referred to it as spiritual rape. That's pretty rough, right? But evangelizing, sharing the gospel, it is like spiritual rape. It is oppressing the people and taking away their rights and forcing your religion upon them. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. I mean, there are all kinds of people that are good without your Jesus. There are all kinds of people that are happy without your Jesus. There are all kinds of people in other religions that don't need your Jesus. Who do you think you are? You narrow-minded bigot. People like you are what's wrong with the world today. People like you are why I don't go to church. You know, I like Jesus. I just don't like people like you. Just press down. And the greatest threat Isn't that people will say that to us. The greatest threat is that we will believe it. Gosh. Spiritual rape. That's an awful thing. I'd hate to do that to somebody. Man, I don't want to be an oppressor. I'm a nice guy. I don't want to be the jack wagon that they hate. That's the reason they don't come to church. No, I'm. Man, I I better not. That's, That's terrible. You know what happens when we believe those things? We become ashamed of the gospel. We become ashamed of the message of Jesus Christ. And what we're ashamed of, we will not share. I mean, think about things in your life that maybe you're ashamed of. You brag about that on Facebook? Talk to your friends about that? No. You bury those things way down deep and hope it never, ever, ever comes out. The world can make us ashamed of the gospel and ashamed to engage the culture, the light of Christ. We will never, ever talk to anyone about Jesus. So how do we overcome shame and ridicule? We remember who Jesus is and what we're actually trying to do. And I know we're here today, so we know who Jesus is. But let me just remind you. Jesus is God. Who cast off the glories of heaven, came to earth in a miraculous way to fulfill a promise that one day a Messiah would come and crush the serpent's head and free the people from his dominion. And as he lived on the earth, he did amazing things. He healed people. He fed people. He taught amazing, amazing teachings. He was a friend to sinners. He, he stuck it to the religious elite that were kind of departing from God. He just generally did good for people. Despite all the good that Jesus did, he was rejected by the majority. He was hated by the majority. And the religious leaders of the day, they plotted against him. And they conspired with the Roman government. And they had him arrested, beaten, crucified, killed in the most despicable, humiliating way they could to discredit him as the Messiah. Before he was crucified, he was horribly beaten as he hung on the cross. He hung there naked, beat to death, and he suffered horribly on the cross. In fact, the way you died on the cross was he he suffocated the times that he spoke. He would have to to literally pull with the nails in his hands and lift up to get Lair in his lungs so that he could talk agonizing, excruciating pain. And then he died. But his death wasn't a shock. His death wasn't a tragedy. His death was the point. That's what he came to do. See, he wasn't just a good man or a good teacher that got on the wrong side of the religious establishment He was the Savior of the world, the the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. On the cross, He did more than suffer physically. He suffered spiritually. On the cross, He endured the wrath that, that your sin and mine deserved. Really, you could say that Jesus endured hell on the cross. And He endured hell on the cross so that we wouldn't have to endure hell in eternity. And after He had taken All of God's wrath for all of our sins, he he died. He said it is finished and he gave up his ghost and he died. He laid in the tomb for three days, but he didn't stay dead. He rose up out of the tomb, walked out victorious, ascended into heaven. Now he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the message we preach. He is the hope that we have. He is the savior of the world. How could I be ashamed to share that message? How could I let ridicule keep me from talking about the one who loves me and has done so much for me? I could never be ashamed of that. But what about sharing the gospel? I mean, are we, are we oppressing people? Are we trying to force our religion upon them? I mean, if we're doing those things, we're wrong. We're wrong. We're wrong to lock people in a cage and burn them alive if they don't accept our religion. We're wrong to behead people who who won't accept our way of uh, of living this religion. (laughs) Oh, but we're not the ones that do that, but that's a different story. We're not oppressing people. What we're doing is doing the greatest good we could possibly do. Look at what Jude said. I love this verse. Rescue others. Snatching them from the flames of judgment. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to rescue, not oppress. We're not forcing our religion. We couldn't. I can't force someone to turn to Jesus. I mean, the the image that Jude presents is one that we need to burn in our minds. Picture. Those that are bound in spiritual darkness, hanging over the fires of hell by a spider web thin strand. And at any moment, that strand could break and drop them into the flames of judgment. And at some point, that strand will break and drop them into the flames of judgment. And they can't get out of that themselves. They can't fix it. They can't undo it. The only thing is that someone needs to reach out and and snatch them from the flames of judgment and rescue them. And the only person that can snatch them from the flames of judgment, the only person that can save them from the wrath to come, is Jesus Christ, who we are telling them about. We are telling them the only message in the world that contains the saving power to save them from the wrath to come. Apart from faith in Jesus, they will face the flames of judgment. and They will burn for eternity. We are doing our dead level best to rescue them. We are doing our dead level best to snatch them from the flames. That is not something to be ashamed of. That is not something to let ridicule keep us from doing. It is a worthy act. It is an honorable thing. It is the greatest good we can do for anyone. To do all that we can so they can be snatched from the flames of judgment. Do not let the world make you ashamed of the message of Jesus Christ. Do not let the world make you ashamed of trying to reach people with the message of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest good you can possibly do. But like anything, it can be misunderstood. How many how many people that drown punch the lifesaver, the, the the lifeguard that comes to save them? How many lifeguards get pushed under by the guy that they're trying to save? People who need to be saved, they often don't recognize it, they often panic, and they often lash out at what's trying to help them. That's just part of the job. Do not be ashamed. Do not believe the world's lies. It is an honorable and a good thing to engage the culture, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand as our musicians come.